MAPSI podcast is produced by the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference, an all-volunteer, always-nonprofit group of firefighters training other firefighters. We invite you to visit our website at www.maffc.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We must acknowledge the following sponsors without whom MAPSI couldn't exist. Scott Safety, Motorola, Delta Airlines, Georgia Fire and Rescue Supply, Blackman Mooring, 10-8 Fire Equipment, MES, Columbia Southern University, and Tempest Technology. Lastly, if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation and support our mission of building better firefighters, please find us on our GoFundMe page. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the participants' own and do not reflect the views of any organization the participant may be affiliated with, including but not limited to the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference and the Metro Atlanta Fire Officers Association. Welcome to Combustible, the Massey podcast. Uh, we are, uh, this is our seventh episode, and we have two very special guests, um, Steve Kerber with uh, UL and Dan Madger. I'm, you know what, we should have done this before we started, <laughs> because I've been looking at your name and trying to make sure that I'm saying it right. Madzrykowski. Madzrykowski. So no, the, the take Z the is Z silent. out of it. Yep. All right, see, I got an H in mind that's silent. That's see, for the that's for the telemarketers. Madrakowski. <laughs> that's that's how we uh, how you um, you vet the people on the phones, right? Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, Dan, Dan, you're with NIST, or you, UL. You've now I, I, re- okay. I retired from NIST last December. I've been with the UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute for almost a year now. Uh, been a fantastic uh, transition. Uh, we just uh, finished up a six-week stint at the lab in Northbrook, uh, where we are con- we conducted 80 experiments in about 40 days, wow. and uh, utilizing different parts of the lab because we were bouncing back and forth, uh, doing tests in a 3,200 uh, square foot two-story building, other tests in a 1,200 square foot building. Those were looking at the impact of ventilation on burn patterns. Um, in the other lab, in the calorimetry lab, we were doing some experiments where we were exposing uh, electrically energized wires to a uh, fire to watch the sparks fly, literally, and look at different ways of protecting the circuits, either with a conventional circuit breaker or a ground fault interrupt circuit protection or arc fault interrupt circuit protection. Uh, we burned a lot of furniture. We burned some um, legacy furniture, if you will. Old sofa made with uh, cotton and steel springs uh, to measure the heat release rate from that, as well as some newer furniture. Uh, Some of the newer furniture had some surprises for us. Uh, Technology and and the products that people use to uh, make furnishings, interior finish, and things used in construction of houses continues to change all the time. And uh, so the surprise was we had a chair that the body of the chair was made out of expanded polystyrene. Now, part of the reason it was a surprise is it's not on the label anywhere. What's on the label, what's required by law, is what the upholstery is made of, not what the body of the chair is made of. So in the past, the body of the chair has been made out of some sort of wood product, if not um, dimensional lumber, you know, some sort of uh, engineered lumber. MDF, something um, like there's hardly any lumber in this chair whatsoever. The, the bulk of the uh, framework is expanded polystyrene, and then it's covered with polyurethane foam and polyester batting. Um, 
So from a styrofoam cup with right. a foam cushion right. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, a 17-pound cup. <laughs> and uh, so when you, you put a match to it, within a few minutes, you have literally just a molten pool of uh, burning right. material on the floor. With right. an eight-foot flame. Okay. So over a megawatt. So it's um, t- two of those, and you can flash a room over. So it's a lot right. of energy. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, your time previous with NIST. How long were you with NIST? A little over 30 years. So we're talking um, a long career. Yeah, we... Uh, Started working there as a co-op student, and uh, then I went and worked for Bechtel Power for a while, uh, working on nukes, and then nukes became unpopular in this country, although they are a really good source of power. And um, I had worked as a student at NIST, and it was, uh, or at at NBS became NIST, and uh, the days were always just blew right by. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of different things. And uh, when I was working at Bechtel, you know, I was there about five years. And if you weren't in the field working, you're basically doing one calculation after another, you know, going uh, through blueprints and whatnot. And you look up the clock and, you know, only five minutes moved. You'd swear a longer period of time happened than that. So I, I had an opportunity to go back to NIST, uh, get some additional education. And um, as with NIST and, and, you know, I say moving over to UL, uh, the mission's exactly the same. I'm doing pretty much the same work. Uh, the shirt that I wear with the emblem has changed, uh, and there's a hell of a lot less red tape, and okay. that's a, that is a, a wonderful thing. Because UL is, uh, <laughs> is a private company, right? Yes, yep. and uh, and the management there is aligned with our mission, where you know the government there's a, a lot of missions, right? There's a lot of different things and and resources competing and whatnot, and uh, in this case, Steve has uh, set up a institute and uh, the leadership above Steve really likes what's going on and uh, so it's pretty easy and when you go to uh, their lab and work uh, it's the number of people that are available to you are amazing which is why we were able to get so many tests on I mean all the folks from the from our institute in Columbia went out there to work uh, and everybody you know really was six you know 14 16 hours a day but the other thing is the technicians that the technical staff that works at UL Northbrook they have two shifts of them so we start working with the one set of guys that start kind of 7 in the morning, and then they roll out at 3, and the next set of guys comes in at 2, and they stay till 10, and it's burn, just burn, burn. it's wow. just wonderful. Wow. Um, and the second shift guys normally don't get to see fire, so they were pretty excited that we were there and right. happy to be learning things, and we were happy to keep keep the work going. So okay. uh, that, that really works out great. So I'm loving it. Awesome. Now, Steve, you've been with UL the whole time. No. No. Um, so right <laughs> right out of the University of Maryland while I was still a student and uh, living in the fire station, I uh, came across Dan and his team at the Maryland Fire Rescue Institute. Okay. So I'm there working as a student, essentially setting up training days and stuff like that, loading the Excelsior and the pallets and cleaning the trucks and stuff right. like that to make a little extra money while I'm going to school. And uh, here comes this group of uh, essentially old guys that have no business fighting fire and they were kind of going through like an industrial fire brigade kind of class of I guess they figured it's like hey we're doing firefighter research we should have some experience we should figure out what this is and I'm kind of watching from a distance and it's like what the who are these guys what are they doing Um, they clearly haven't done this before (laughs) clearly not some some of them had some of them clearly had not um, but part of that class was that they wanted them to climb a stick of a ladder truck to the roof and see what that was like. So I was a 
uh, volunteer at the local department. I right. ran up, grabbed the ladder truck, brought it down, and set it up for him. And uh, while that was going on, I met one of the guys that worked there, Nelson Briner, and one of the odd things as I got to talk to him was he hands me a business card. And on that business card is one, a picture of fire of some sort. So I was like, that's kind of interesting. What's that? And then on the back was essentially all the research they did, all the topics they did, and stuff like thermal imaging cameras, positive pressure ventilation, uh, different types of fires. And I was like, who are these guys? What is this? I didn't even know this was a thing. Um, (laughs) And uh, essentially that kicked off me starting as a co-op student at NIST and Right after 9-11, um, actually January 1st of 2012, or 2002, and uh, I was at NIST for seven or eight years, and then I've been at UL for seven or eight years, somewhere in that ballpark. Well, here's what I, here's what I don't understand. NIST being government, mm-hmm. obviously, is going to <clears throat> conduct experiments, do whatever, set policy, present data, and all that stuff. UL, my limited knowledge of UL being that it's on the tag on my cord on my toaster you got a little it. UL mm-hmm. absolutely where does and I know I, I did do a little bit of reading on UL went to Wikipedia which you know of course everything's Clearly, true yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah. um, but it did state that UL started <clears throat> one of the two things that UL started doing when it was created was fire safety true where does UL as a private company benefit from the research that you're doing? Sure. Um, well, you, UL is a private company. Um, we have a not-for-profit, essentially public charity mission ownership, if you will. Okay. So a charity, and we have one of the most unique setups in, in the world. We've got a uh, charity that owns the for-profit company. And the reason they set it up that way was that they want the mission of UL, so essentially the safe living and working environments for people, to last forever. So the better the company does, the more charity work, the more greater good we can do for the world. I gotcha. So UL happened to get its start in Chicago in 1894 when they had the World's Fair introducing electricity to the United States. Um, Essentially, they were unveiling this new phenomenal technology. And guess what happened? Stuff caught fire. Right. Um, So it was a matter of, well, wait, this is great. We got lights. We don't need lamps and all this other stuff, burning flames and everything else. But it's catching fire. How do we not have this happen? So they brought our founder out from MIT in Boston, came out and essentially set up office in the hayloft of a Chicago fire patrol station. So here's this guy with no essentially fire background. He was an electrical Mm -hmm. guy for the most part. And uh, picture him running out on these horse-drawn apparatus going to these fires to figure out why that electrical component lit that fire. And fast forward 120 years and the fire service is still, I mean, what better group of people to support? I right. mean, who, who's take, you guys take care of us. Who's taking care of the right. fire service? Who's making them better? Okay. And you all says, you know what? Because we've got people like Steve and Dan that have expertise in science of fire, and we both love the fire service, 
let's parlay that into making the fire service a target audience of ours. Right. Because if you're effective, what better way to make safe living and right. working environments for people than to make you more effective? Yeah. Okay. See, I I, I didn't get that common good thing. They, they need to sure. add that to the Wikipedia article. Well, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Pete, what, what do you finally find on Wikipedia? It's yeah. profit, 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 and yeah. stuff like that, and you, and you miss people's missions. Right. I mean, a lot of times people don't understand the mission of the fire service in many cases. Okay. It gets blurred, right? Yeah. I'm not going to make you recite your mission statement because I mean, we don't, <clears throat> well, I'm not. I don't need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go there. We'll avoid um, that topic. Yeah. Uh, one more thing out of your bio that I want to ask about: you're pursuing a doctorate at a university in Sweden. Sure. Because there weren't any schools around here. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's. Uh, Fire protection engineering as a discipline is a very small profession. Okay. Um, there are there is one undergraduate school in the United States, and that's the University of Maryland. There are three graduate programs: uh, Maryland, Worcester Polytechnic in Boston, and Cal Poly in California, and that's it. Okay. Um, so I did my undergrad and my grad at the University of Maryland, and. I was coached by a lot of intelligent people, especially people like Dan, where you get a couple degrees from the same place and you kind of learn what those professors right. have to teach you. You look a little uh, stagnant. Right. So to go get your third degree from the same place, it's just kind of learning the same stuff and maybe a little bit more of the same stuff. Gotcha. And at the time when I was doing research at NIST, um, there's very few places that are doing fire service research. And one of those places happened to be a fire academy that was close to Lund University in Sweden, uh, Revingby, where Stefan Svensson, who is, uh, was doing research on positive pressure at the same time I was doing research on positive pressure, met him at a conference, got hooked up with him, um, uh, learned a tremendous amount from him, thought he was a great guy, and he happened to have a tie to the university there with a new set of professors right. to learn new stuff. Okay. Um, so it's been a very, very long road. Um, when I started it many years ago, uh, no kids, no... Uh, no, no institute? No institute, <laughs> one project at a time, and now we've got 15 <clears throat> projects going at once and a kid right. running around and uh, more fire service interaction than we ever could have dreamed of. So... Uh, so that's my path, and Dan's actually finishing up his doctorate at in New Zealand yeah. uh, for the wow. same for the same reason. <laughs> that it's when you get to the doctorate level, it's it's more about your uh, the people you surround yourself with. There's no set curriculum okay. in many cases. It's very much proving that you can learn and expanding the science to somewhere that no one ever has before. Right. And the way to do that is to get hooked up with a professor that has the same interests you do, uh, which okay. is where Dan found yeah. Charlie Fleischman. And, and, and all, these, all these linkages are kind of interesting. So Steve, you know, lived in the firehouse, Station 12 in College Park, and went up through the ranks there to become deputy chief. And uh, Charlie Fleischman, my professor at the uh, University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, also went to the University of Maryland, also lived in Station 12. He's got a Station 12 okay. helmet, you know, hanging, <laughs> hanging on his wall. And uh, as he was going through, there was a program at Berkeley 
Uh, there was a lot of federal funding uh, at a period of time in the 70s, 80s, a little bit into the 90s um, that were supporting grant work at Harvard, uh, University of Michigan, uh, Cal Berkeley. So a lot of the big schools, big engineering schools. So they had a professor or two that were really focused on, uh, on doing this kind of work. So he went out to California and initially, uh, at the time, Maryland wasn't seen as a uh, powerhouse uh, academic school. And so the professors there weren't too interested in adopting him. Nobody wanted, right. you know, ah, we don't need him as a student. And then he blew through his classes very successfully. You know, his oral exams were incredible. Then all the professors wanted him to be the, you know, work right. for him. So um, as Steve indicated, I had a pretty good background from what has been going on at the University of Maryland. You know, Jim Quintieri worked at NIST. Uh, I worked for him. Uh, he was my division chief for a while, and then he went to NIST to teach, and, or went to uh, the University of Maryland to teach and write his books and whatnot. And um, the folks in leadership at uh, WPI, you know, I shared an office with one of them, and, you know, we, we had working relationships, you know, over the years. So I really wanted to get sort of that California experience that existed 20 years ago. What were they doing? Uh, Charlie's PhD thesis is on backdraft, and still to this day, he's run some of the best exper backdraft experiments to help explain that phenomenon, how that works. Right. And um, so that's why I, I thought you were going to say screenwriting. I uh, I, jo I joined forces <laughs> with him, and uh, um, and he's still doing smoke explosion work and, right. and and other things there at the university with the students. And it's uh, it's just interesting, and you get some little different perspective from the New Zealand Fire Service sure. and. Of course, Steve's learning from this uh, Swedish fire service, and right. what can we bring back home and and uh, add to the knowledge base? That's awesome. It's kind of unique. We kind of talk about the same thing. Oh, uh, by the way, this is Hatch. Uh, yeah, I kind of completely skipped <laughs> Hatch being in the room. But we, we we talk about our guys doing the same thing. If you only learn from your your department, you cut yourself short. You know, just because yeah. it's another department Big doesn't time. mean that they're you know even if they're smaller, there's things that they can teach you. You know, whether it be administrative or whatever, that you know, you got to get outside your own your own house a little bit and sure. learn. Sure. And you guys are basically doing the same thing. But it's know. easier than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, you've got MathSea at a local level where everyone's kind of looking up and out and bringing in the best of the region. Uh, you get on the internet and you can pretty much learn from anybody. Right. I mean, with helmet cams and stuff like that, right. we can be going to everybody's fires yeah. and and learning. And as long as you do it in a constructive way and put yourself in that person's shoes, that can be a great tool. Um, but now it's international. I mean, you can be looking at German fires and Japanese fires and everything right. else. And um, it's, the technology is amazing. And, and what are we doing to leverage it to really learn from each other? Right. And, and how do we tell what's the best way to do it? I mean, how do you tell when, when these guys are different enough? I mean, we tend to silo ourselves and be like, well, we know how to do it. And right. shut everybody else out. And it's... Uh, but then you get in the room and talk with these guys, and it's like, damn, we got a lot in common with these guys. This is yeah. great. And it's yeah. Every time uh, I go to the National Fire Academy, we always get in there, and you know, we're, I, we've been together a few times, but we typically are one of the bigger departments in there. You know, either one of ours, and you know, people are always like, oh, you know, we got a small volunteer. You know, if we got everybody there, it's twelve people, and I'm like. I'm more impressed with what you do sure. with what little you have than what we do with yeah. all that we have. Right. I mean, because you, we have the same type of fires. You know, a single family residence. 
I can bring 30 people to the first alarm. You guys bring 12, and that's your whole department. Sure. And you both put them out, so yeah. it impresses it, me. And you're never going to say, oh, we're good with 12. You want your 30. Exactly. Right. But then the question <laughs> becomes, we should be doing more than twice what they're doing right? to, to make this problem go away. Yeah, so and sometimes I, I it doesn't to, feel that way. I tend to ask them more questions than they ask me because I'm so interested in how they pull it off. Sure. I mean, they're forced to be efficient. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Absolutely. Well, you guys have done uh, collectively a lot of research. You've presented a lot in uh, Fire Dynamics over the years. And I wanted to specifically talk to both of you about some of the uh, controversial aspects of what you've presented and how it's been received in the fire service. Uh, We've talked in in an earlier podcast about some of our experiences. I taught a class for a while that everybody at the end of it got up and said, oh, this is one of the best classes I've ever taken. And then when you follow up with them in about a year, did they go do what you, the one thing you asked them to do at the end of the class? <laughs> yeah. And no one, if, if they're being honest, it was zero. Zero out of 900 people in a department did it. So is that effective? You know? Um, what were you trying to make them do? I wanted them to read a report. <laughs> That's all I wanted them to do. Amazing. Uh, huh? we, had, we had presented our conclusions on this report. And you wanted them to digest I, it themselves I and just, come to their own conclusions. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, Zero read the report. So <clears throat> they just accepted yours. Yeah. Must have been good. <laughs> but, you know, talking to other instructors is the same thing. But And it's not necessarily the same kind of what I think some of the, the pushback that you guys have experienced over the years with presenting new ideas, uh, presenting things that are contrary to some of the for lack of a better term, macho aspects of firefighting, which, you know, when you tell firefighters that maybe they need to uh, start on the outside of the structure before they, you know, go charging in and burn their lids up, that there's a there's a gut reaction with some of those people where they, you know, sure. that's that's not firefighting. Uh, you know, you get a robot to do that or whatever, but sure. So if you would talk about some of that that those controversial aspects and how you guys deal with them and ultimately what happens when those people you know say hey I don't agree or sure well I mean let's go back big picture uh, in general is the whole concept of research Um, and that's been a major thing that we've had to overcome is that um, fire service hasn't had research for the most part at least as part of its mainstream uh, maybe ever. Um, stuff has been going on in the 70s. There was a whole bunch of tremendous work being done. I mean, you go back to Royer and Nelson and and all of that stuff, and these guys were really trying to do some stuff and really layer the research with the experience and, and move forward. And a lot of it got cut off in the 70s and didn't come back until essentially Dan brought it back in the 90s. And when research is not part of your profession on an ongoing basis, you tend to question the need for it when it pops its head up. Well, um, you hear it. I hear it all the time. You know, it's still just fire, and we still put water. It's been it's been like this for thousands of years. We put water on fire, and that's you know. Sure. So, you know, there is a, an undercurrent within the service that why question it? But sure, no to doubt. say that it's the same as it was even a hundred years ago is ridiculous. It's not absolutely. It's absolutely ridiculous and, and not true. And I think that a lot of early on, I mean, 
Bobby Halton jokes with me all the time. He's like, we could have held your uh, FDIC class in a phone booth. It would be me, you, and the one, <laughs> one other guy that was there or whatever in the, in the early days. Um, fast forward to today and, and, and well, having a couple hundred people in a classroom today in, right. in Cobb County, I mean, that people are more interested in what it what it's saying, what it means, right. how it applies to them. So those first classes, let's say you, you're, you're presenting one of those, you know, starting out very early in this, and you're challenging some of the conventional wisdom of firefighting. Sure. Did you have people walking out of the class? Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. I, mean, I don't know. know what I, as an instructor, a part-time sometimes instructor, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what I would have done. Well, see, I mean, it just, and here's where we got to be careful about conventional wisdom. Um for you know, for when? When was this conventional wisdom? So we'll have folks saying us, well, this is how we've always done it, right? Nothing has changed. This this is what we're doing. We're an aggressive interior fire department. This is what we're gonna do. Well, that person's only been fighting fire probably from the eighties or nineties to the present day. Because if you look at the era before turnout gear, the way that firefighters always fought fire was to start from the outside and work their way in. That's true. If they didn't cool it down, they weren't going in. And if you look at Lloyd Lehman's uh, chart of how to fight a fire, basically, that uh, was being published starting in the 40s and up through 1977, um, it always talks about find the fire, we call it size up today, uh, go to where the seat of the fire is and put water there, and then go in and finish it up, mop it up. And... The idea was you want to try to reduce the temperature to the point that nothing, you don't have any big fire burning in there. Certainly there's no fire gases burning. You might have some uh, debris that's still burning. You might have a flame a foot or two tall still in the house that you need to go take care of. But you don't have any full, fully involved compartments anymore by the time you're going in to take care of business. And part of the reason was you had no hood, right? You had no thermal protection to speak of other than a heavy coat. Right. You had some kind of gloves, depending on where you live. Maybe Lowers you had gloves, gloves. <laughs> or you might have had gloves with a latex on them that would melt a hot right. bed frame, you know, the red ball red gloves. Mm-hmm. But they were waterproof. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and and some sort of helmet. Could be a leather helmet, could be a tin helmet, could be an early plastic helmet. But, I mean, you didn't have a lot of protection. So you had to get the temperature down to where you were interacting with temperatures that were on the order of 150 degrees or so, or maybe a little less. So you could go in, and the concept of venting as you go was critically important at that point in time. So you've cooled the fire gases down, so they're not going to auto-ignite, and you get in there and you have to vent as you go because you do not have an SCBA. So you're opening every window you come across, you're opening every door, you're trying to air it out, get fresh air in there for yourself, makes perfect sense. Then we skip ahead, now everybody's encapsulated, you have an SCBA, you're not cooling the fire gases down. The fire gases that we find in the houses today are much more reactive with oxygen than the fuel gases that would come off the cotton and wood and wool right. and things like that 40 years ago. Now we have stuff coming off of polyurethane foam, polyester, all things that have been synthesized or made up from petroleum products. So we've got this fuel-rich environment. It's got the heat. It's got the fuel from the fire triangle. It just needs more oxygen. So now if you go in there and you're doing your search and you don't have a line on the fire and you didn't cool the gases and now you're venting as you're going, you're pulling the fire to your position. You're encouraging that fire to transition a flashover, 
right? So you can't have this disconnect, right? You've got to, everything is a system. Everything's got to be synchronized. And part of what we're trying to preach, if you will, is if you understand the fire behavior better, then you'll make the right decisions on your own. Nobody's got to tell you what to do on the fire ground, provided you understand the cause and effect relationship with what's right. going on. And so that's where we're trying to fill that gap. I think that's where some of your audience reacts negatively is they think that you're trying to tell them how to fight fire necessarily. When you're presenting research, if I'm correct, you're just mm-hmm. presenting research to say, this is how you need to be considering this. And right. that's the word. Right. The word is, I mean, we are very careful in some of the language we choose, and, and one of the key terms is tactical considerations. We're asking that you consider this, that you look at the science of this. I'm not going to tell you what your resources are. I'm not going to tell you what your response times are. I don't know your building construction. Right. However, your fire dynamics are going to dictate a lot of those other things. But if, if we can speak the same fire dynamics language, and fire doesn't think, fire doesn't know where it is, fire right. does not know whether it's in Atlanta or DeKalb, but fires don't burn differently in those two places. Right. So ultimately, why would tactics be different in those two places? Maybe right. it's staffing, maybe it's building construction, maybe it's just literally not understanding fire dynamics. So if you your departments understand fire dynamics the same exact way, then you can have intelligent conversations and make decisions based on, all right, we know the fire. The fire follows a set of rules. Right. We know what those are. It's not an enemy that in the in the combat field that thinks and tries to outsmart you. It literally, it's set. So if we know that, and then we layer on top of that everything we learned from Brannigan and other really smart people about building construction, we now essentially know our work environment and if we know how our interactions interact with those two things, we're golden. Right. We got it all figured out. And then from that point on, then it's up to you, based on what resources you have, to make those decisions with what you see in the street. Right. And while there's a lot of variables, they're all understandable, predictable. You can make decisions based on what you see. And use the resources you have and that might be different than your neighbors right. um, but ultimately it's uh, if we've got the common language we can have a productive conversation about what the right thing to do is where we have found contention and where you start hearing people getting upset with each other and stuff like that is that they all, they both have their own set of science their own set of fire dynamics and people can argue all day long with what resources they have, but you can't make up your own fire science. Right. I mean, it just doesn't doesn't work that way. So if if we all know the same cause and effect, then we can all make an intelligent decision based on what we see. And I mean, getting to the the pushing fire and a lot of those topics out there that can be very polarizing and put people against each other. My feeling is that a lot of that contention comes from. Um, people immediately going to the extremes with a idea of a particular incident or a particular scenario that they have experienced or they feel they know or whatever the case is, and they're arguing with a person that is not talking about the same scenario or instance that that person is. 
So they can't come to an agreement because they're talking about two different things. They're both probably right or potentially right. Right. But they're going to argue till they're blue in the face because they're arguing about sure. two different things, and uh, which gets frustrating because that's hard to figure out on the right. internet and, and stuff that, like that. That history that they've got is probably surrounded or, or probably part of what was maybe a very trying experience for them in some respect. Sure. Where they are adamant that you know, I know this happened. I'm not going to let this happen again or whatever. And, and yeah. you get those emotions. Kind of well, I mean, part of it's like, you know, the five blind men and the elephant, right? They're the five blind men are different parts. I haven't heard this one. No, yet. they're it's different. The one where they're feeling the parts. Yeah, of the they're feeling the parts of the elephant. So one's feeling the trunk and he says, well, elephant feels like this. One's right. feeling the leg. One's feeling the tail. And they're certain this is what it is. Well, it's the same thing on the fire ground. Right. You had a certain perspective, but maybe you didn't understand where all the openings were. You didn't understand at that right. point in time where the flow path was. So you didn't understand how the fire was behaving and that's part of what we we can do with the research is we can put 20 cameras there. So we can look, we've got a thermal imaging camera view here, one inside here, a couple outside so we can understand what it's doing to help develop those cause and effect relationships. And you had uh, talked a little bit about what was an aha moment for you. So. Uh, in my case, my interaction with the fire service came from line of duty deaths. I mean, that's basically how we started to get involved with right. what's going on. And it was a, a precursor a few years after we got started. Then NIOSH uh, got their uh, fire fatality and prevention program going, their investigation and prevention program. And those folks, they have, they have a really tough job yeah. um, and with what they do. And, and the folks running it, Tim Mariner and his crew, they, they do a really great job. But when it first started out, uh, they had folks that worked for NIOSH that basically had experience in looking at construction site fatalities. And they didn't know fire, and they didn't have a lot of fire experience, and so they reached out to us to, to help them as a federal partner and all that kind of thing. And uh, we also had some other uh, incidents, local incidents, where ATF reached out and said, hey, can you come down and look at this? Or see what's going on because they were also starting their certified fire investigator program around that that period of time so there's a lot of things uh going on so my experience early experience with the fire service was i'm going to a department where they just lost somebody uh, people tough. are people are going through the interviews interesting what people are saying and or not saying uh, depending on how things work and so in one incident um it was a training fire and it just so happened that I was in the area for NFPA meeting, and I was with the state fire marshal, and he gets a call, and something bad just happened. Right. Let's go, and so we went over to the went over to the scene, and uh, the resultant was two firefighters died, mm -hmm. and uh, in a training fire in a nothing house. They had been burning on this facility for a, more than a month, but all the buildings that they had been burning in were concrete block dorm buildings. So they had their fuel load set up. They knew what they were doing. They were going through. And now they had two single-family homes left. And these were going to be the last burns. And, of course, they wanted to put a very positive spin on all this because they had been having departments in the region all coming in and, and participating. So they were getting a good value for this derelict property that was you know, going to be renovated and a new thing is coming. So they saved this house for last. And... Um, they were going to do a big burn for the press. So their PIO was out there filming, 
which provided us with film of the incident. And, uh, and the press was going to come. They were going to do a burn at about 11 o'clock in the morning or so or get ready for it so it could be on the new news and all the stuff was, you know, and then line up for the evening news as well. So before that, uh, they had a bunch of drivers that have not been on the end of a fire hose in a long time. So they thought that they were going to run them through a real quick scenario. And they had a young guy that had just joined the department and they were going to put him on a search, uh, training search with uh, a lieutenant, very seasoned lieutenant, good trainer. Everybody loved him, uh, loved his classes, loved the drills he set up and all that kind of thing. The instant commander, although he was not uh, uh, following 1403 uh, to the letter and wasn't required to by state law, he had done a number of things to ensure the safety. He had two sources of water. Right. He had a RIT team. They did a walkthrough. They were doing a number of things. Well, so uh, the evolution starts, and the uh, attack crews, two of them with charged lines, follow the search crew in the building. The search crew is doing a right-hand search. They're looking for a mannequin. They don't know exactly where the mannequin is, but they're looking for a mannequin. And um, they go in the fire room, and the fire room was, uh, in a previous life, had been a carport that had now been enclosed and it had a big picture window at one end of it. And the uh, host crews go in. Uh, they don't. They think that the search crew is out of the fire room, but they're not. Uh, and they flow some water and they can't quite see where they're at. And when they flow water, they don't really get any water in the room. They kind of splash water back on themselves. And they're getting hot because the fire's here. The only opening in the house is the front door. So the only place for the fire to exchange heat is over their head. Right. So they get on the radio to the outside vent man and say, we're getting hot. So the OV breaks this big window. Next thing you know, that room flashes over. Well, unfortunately, the two search guys were still in that room. Mm. And uh, the lieutenant was sort of found in the center of the room. And uh, he was passed out through that window and, and people were working on him. Uh, the RIT team had been looking for them. They went around the back. They thought they were out. They couldn't find them. Uh, unfortunately, the young firefighter that only been on the job a couple of days uh, was burnt so bad they didn't see him because mm. he was right under the window where the fresh air comes and mixes, and he was just charred. And with the bright sunlight outside, they overlooked him several right. times. <clears throat> so uh, we rebuilt that structure in the laboratory, and... We ran some experiments with it. Uh, State Fire Marshal's office was very interested. And um, we did it with and without. They, they happened to use a mattress in this evolution. Mm. Uh, the, the fuel load got wet the night before. They'd started off with pallets and straw. Uh, as they got into the evolution, the safety guys inside, they had four safety guys inside the structure, radioed that, you know, we're not getting any heat. We got plenty of smoke. We're not getting any heat. Can we add some fuel to the fire? Instant commander said yes. There was no discussion about what that fuel would be. As luck would have it, there were two uh, solid polyurethane foam mattresses left in the structure. Mm. Uh, one of those was grabbed, put on the pile of pallets in a closet in the burn room. Next thing you know, the thing took off and uh, got dark, got hot. That's when they called for that. They tried to apply water, but they couldn't hit that. So, right. they, so um that was one. So we, what we wanted to look at was with the five pallets and the bale of hay that they had in there, could they have flashed the room over anyway? 
Uh, I should mention the room also had carpeting in it because it just wasn't pulled out. And again, uh, 1403 has since been clarified because there was language in there that would indicate uh, unusual fuels. Right. I mean, carpeting is not all that unusual. We have it everywhere, right? right. So uh, they, they cleared everything out of there except they left the carpeting and the padding on right. the floor. Again, once it flashed over, that all took off. So um, we, we ran some experiments with just the wood, then the wood and the car- carpeting and whatnot. The wood fuel they had itself was enough to flash the room over, but the flashover was not as intense or as long a duration. The excess fuel would burn itself away once you vented the window and, and would pull back to the closet. So in any event, we did a number of those things, and uh, we invited the chiefs and training folks up from the departments that were involved to see one of these experiments. And this is where it really struck me about the lack of understanding in the fire service about fire behavior. Uh, at that point in time. Um, We get the fire going. I gave one of the chiefs a thermocouple readout. Uh, The TC was about two feet below the ceiling in the fire room. And it's sitting right at about 700 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. And as you, it was stratified in the room. So as you got to about three feet above the floor, it was 120, 150 degrees Fahrenheit or something. So if you're in your bunker gear and you're in a corner, you could be sitting there watching that fire and not really experiencing a lot of stress. You'd be getting a little warm, but you're okay. Um, And we got it to the point where everything was heated up, fire darkened down, fuel-rich fire. It's We got the hot gases there. We have the temperature. It's missing oxygen. We vent the window, and it transitions to flashover in 30 to 60 seconds after venting the window. But as soon as we vent the window, the temperature at the ceiling starts going up, and the chief starts reading out the temperature to the other chiefs that are with him. You know, 700, 900, 1100, 1300, 1500, and you see the flames roll out the window. And they were all shocked. And they said, today at our academy, we're teaching people that you vent to cool. Right. So they didn't understand that if you have a fuel-controlled fire, vent to cool works perfectly fine. If you have a ventilation-controlled fire, this excess gaseous fuel in the house and you just vent, you're going to make the fire bigger. Right. And so that was the big, the fact that these experienced chiefs were shocked by what happened, right. you know, which to us from fire protection engineering background, it's like, oh, we know this is going to happen. But they were shocked by it. It's like, okay, we need to, we've got a lot of work to do. Right. And that was one of the uh, catalytic moments, if you will, that like we got to really try, try to get this information out to the fire service and change right. this up. And build that bridge. Okay. Uh, our listeners might have heard the door open earlier. That was uh, Sean Gray coming in to tell us that dinner is ready. So we're going to pause right here, and we'll uh, we'll come back. Okay. Uh, we are back. Um, I can't remember exactly where we were. So we're going to start again. But we uh, we did want to pick up. Uh, something we were talking to you guys before uh, we actually started recording, which was uh, in both of your bios that you are honorary battalion chiefs in the FDNY. And there were some details to that that were particularly fascinating to, uh, to Hatch and I. So what does that entail about, you know, being a, a battalion chief, an honorary battalion chief with FDNY? Well, it's, it's a program through the FDNY foundation. Um, so they, they support it, and, I mean, you want to talk about a, a 
fire department foundation that that means business and does business. Right. And, uh, I mean, they bring in millions of dollars to support the FDNY, and it's incredible to watch the the great stuff that they do with that money. But as far as the, the honorary battalion chief system, um, essentially, I guess you you get nominated by members of the FDNY. This is like uh, the Nobel process or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I'm sure there's a lot of a uh, lot of things turning behind the scenes. But I mean, Dan and I have had the pleasure of working hand in hand with many members of the right. FDNY, trying to help them on many different topics, from wind driven fires to pressurizing stairwells to floor below nozzles to uh, all the gov- two trips to Governor's Island burning high rises and burning uh, townhouses and uh, I mean they, someone nominated us they put us in for this uh, tremendous honor and they hold a ceremony at the rock at the uh, at the training academy and essentially swear you in um, right. and uh, you get your uh it's a great family event. You get your badge, you get your uh, ID, and in uh, a nice little presentation, and the, the commissioner and the chief and everybody's there. Shake your hand, and uh, everybody hugs each other, and then you sign some secret oath to so the handshake. The handshake, handshake absolutely, the covert yeah. handshake, all that stuff. You have to get a tattoo. Um, you, you, you pay your dues. You never quite know who completely is in the system. That's uh, that's the part I like. Is yeah. This is a new bucket list item for me. Yeah, I'm going to try to work towards it. There you go. Uh, uh, cool. so, yeah, the, the fact that you don't Don't make know me get my badge out. Who the other members are is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, you kind of hear. I mean, that every year when they induct new people, everyone that is a member is invited to attend. Um, obviously not... For whatever reasons, not everybody's able right. to make it there, or whatever. But that one of the fun parts about going back to you never knew who's going to be there, right? See who's there, right? Yeah. Um, so, Dan, are there are there responsibilities that go along with the honorary battalion chief? St- stay out of trouble. Don't don't uh, <laughs> yeah. don't don't, don't, don't yes. embarrass. Don't no, don't that, misuse that anything. A, yeah. uh, in you know, in theory, that could help um, uh, get you some access in New York City. Okay. Um, you know, to a fire ground, perhaps, right. or some other things, and just make sure to, you know, treat all this uh, responsibly. Um, and it's, uh, I think we were the first ones that sort of got it for, based on engineering help and science help. Uh, a lot of people get it based on uh, financial help, I believe. There's some. Right. Um, there's other guys, like one guy that I met uh, from Con Ed. So he basically pioneered uh, a relationship between Con Ed and FDNY, and so uh, they appreciated that. So one example is Con Ed has a number of trucks that they can use to vacuum dirt. So he happened to see where there was a, a construction collapse, and the FDNY guys were there with hand tools and various other things. He's right. like, wait a minute, we've got stuff you know, that we could dispatch. So they set up some agreements, they do some pre-plans, they've got a memorandum of understanding so that this stuff can be accessed easily. Everybody, battalion chiefs know about it, know it's available and all that. So that entailed some training. So this guy, you know, helped with the training and whatnot. There were other issues where, uh, you know, Con Ed would say, if we have a problem at one of our plants, uh, wait for us. Don't, Don't go in. And, of course, uh, at some point in time years ago, that advice wasn't followed. And uh, uh, 
I don't remember if it was a, just a bad injury or a, a fatality, but basically somebody got hit with some real, real steam, right. uh, the kind you can't see, and right. you know, and and there's a reason why guys, when they're having an issue, they walk around certain parts of the plant with a broomstick in front of them to make sure that there's no steam jet, invisible steam jet wow. cutting across, uh, those kinds of things. So now again, they through experience and uh, partnership, they, they make some of these arrangements. So those are some of the things we've seen. Right. Um, so it's, it, it sounds like it's much more uh, calculated as to who they let into the club yeah, because yeah. it's you're, you're bringing something to it. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's not just you're, you're bring, yeah, yeah, you're bringing, it's, it, you're bringing something to the table for them and, and, uh, and vice versa. I mean, this is uh, somewhat organic. So we... FDNY realized they had a problem with wind-driven fires based on line-of-duty deaths, injuries, and near misses, right? And they said, this is something we can't out-muscle. Right. Now, when Steve and I start working on this with them, then we run some tests in our lab first. But how did that, not to cut you off, but how, but, does, how does that happen? Was it a phone call? Did somebody come up to you at a conference and go, you know, we're really having a problem with this? Or? Yeah. What, what's the name of the book that he needs to buy? You know, I've got a stack of books to read that's about oh, as tall as I am. The Billy Goldfeder book. Give it back to call back to oh what the hell oh is oh uh, <laughs> yeah what is the Goldfeder book what is he talking about oh the uh, pass it on pass it on pass it on pass it alarm okay. pass it on second alarm yeah. pass it on second alarm so that great for your Christmas list add them to your Christmas yeah list. that okay. that that story is in there uh, so basically uh, FDIC mid nineties and I'm making presentations some of my first ones to the fire service on fire dynamics and burning things and right. we're really fundamental we're talking about heat release rate so there's this battalion chief from uh, FDNY who's also presenting it and he's presenting on high-rise fires because that's his first due right. and he he understands that heat release rates an important concept but he doesn't know a lot about it so we start talking and then we're back in the Stone Age, so we're using slides. And he's like, hey, could I get some of your slides of where you're burning office furniture and where you're burning furniture? And could I get some of those slides to put into my high-rise class? Because this is important because we consider this occupancy light hazard. Right. Right? Even though you're telling me, <laughs> look at the flames coming out of that. So it's pictures of burning furniture and Chief's Jerry Tracy. And uh, so we, we get that to them, and a couple of years pass, and Vandalia Avenue occurs, and uh, three FDNY firefighters are killed, and uh, we get called to go there, but not by the fire department. We get called by the uh, New York Inspector General's office, and the reason we get called is because the uh, it was a New York City uh, building, and uh, the housing authority and the fire department are... Uh, at a loggerhead kind of thing. The fire department saying, you built this building in a way that resulted in the death of our firefighters. Right. And uh, the housing authority saying, no, no, no. Your tactics. You know, but again, this building's not built to, it's built to its own code, mm -hmm. right? City code. It's not built, this, it had a sprinkler system that did not have a fire department connection. It was only in the hallway. It's not a 13 system. It's not a 13D right. system. It's some hybrid something. And uh, at the end of the day, the investigation showed that the system from the second floor to the 10th floor was never charged, was never mm -hmm. turned on. Uh, the building was turned over to the city in the winter, so everything was winterized. And uh, when somebody turned the system on, they only turned the system on on the first floor, 
<clears throat> the test valve was on the first floor, right. so it was periodically getting tested, and they thought the system right. was working, but in fact, for the life of the building, I think the building opened in 86, and the fatalities happened in 98. 98. You know, that never had water yeah. in the system from the second and tenth floor. Any event, wind-driven fire, years. and um, there's some, some mystery to that. We still don't you know the answer don't know the answer to we do know the fire spread very quickly through the space right. and by the time a mayday got off and a line could be advanced down the hall it was too late for three firefighters so um lieutenant cavalieri firefighter bohan and firefighter bob and so jerry uh at that point in time says we need to do something about this because this is not the first time for us right with the wind driven fires and uh then nine, so we start making some progress. Uh, he had identified this is over the, years. Yeah, so th this is this is uh, two thousand uh, at this point in time. He's identified the buildings at Governor's Island, and then of course nine eleven occurs. Mm -hmm. So everything kind of goes on the back burner at that right. point. But then it comes back because they have a near miss, and Chief George Healy is the instant commander at the near miss. The near miss occurs in a building that years earlier killed another firefighter in a wind-driven fire. Same building, hmm. right? And so uh, he gets with Jerry Tracy, and and uh, Jerry Tracy handpicks a couple other guys because he knows he's getting toward the end of his, his career. John Cirillo's one of them. You know, that they're energetic. They get it. They're reading. They're students right. on the job. And uh, so we're doing everything we can. We're going to the U.S. Fire Administration looking for money. I'm pushing my people at NIST trying to get money. We're trying to make it happen. And then these uh, DHS FEMA grants come out. And then we got really lucky. So basically, we got parts of two grants in one year. One in alignment with the National Fire Protection Association in, that helped fund the laboratory work at NIST uh, in part, and then NIST put some money in. And then the other part was through um, basically the FDNY Foundation in collaboration with the NYU. And they were able to fund us and fund firefighter overtime to do the tests on Governor's Island in the high rises. And so we start burning in uh, November in our lab, and we finished that up in December. We started construction in our lab in October. Mm -hmm. We started burning late October, early November. We finished that up in December, and before the end of February, uh, we were burning in New York. Now, the sad part about that is Lieutenant Martinson died in a, a wind that aided or wind-assisted fire about a month earlier before we started the mm. testing. Um, so again, so, unfortunately, that gave us another fire scene to go to and another, you right. know, understanding. So what, what was the time span between that first chief saying, hey, can I borrow your slides, and you guys are burning on Governor's Island? Almost 10 years. A little, little more than 10 years. And then from what you learn at Governor's Island is a lot of that's where a lot of the data well, is coming from. That, well, that was the first Governor's Island. Okay. Well, so that was Governor's Island in the seven-story building, looking at wind-driven fires and stairwell pressurization and floor below nozzles and stuff like that. Okay. Fast forward to well, well, here's the part that accelerates. So, we're done with the tests on Governor's Island. We now have like a year's worth of work to write the reports get all the videos done, whatnot. Well, now FDNY is on the phone with us almost every day. We want to put a pilot project into a couple of boroughs and get this moving right now. Mm -hmm. So we need we need the answers like right now. How about this test? What about this test? 
And so Steve and I are working that, you know, trying to get, get all that information to them. They run a pilot project. They have what they view as a couple of saves as part of that where guys are getting a beating. They drop a wind control device over the window. Everything got better right. kind of thing. So uh, they f- they file for a, a FEMA grant to buy the wind control devices to make the uh, floor below nozzles, buy fans, and provide training. So now they're putting out DVDs for training. They're they're really accelerating this, and within, what, 18 months? That stuff is throughout the 18 months after the test. Every that, battalion, yeah. So every squad's got a got the big wind control device. Every truck has a smaller wind control device that one person can deploy. And every uh, battalion has a nozzle. Yeah. So the th- the key part is now that we've developed this relationship, and we're working with these captains and these battalion chiefs and whatnot, they began to realize that ventilation as a whole was had a lot of misunderstanding within their department. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started that the wind driven case was just an extreme case of bad ventilation right. tactics, what happens right? Normally anyway. So so then they said, you know, we gotta we gotta look at all our ventilation, we've gotta look at our coordination of attack, we've gotta look at all this stuff. And then that's what really started the rich relationship that then Steve was getting to, how we go back to Governor's Island and how they change their SOPs on residential structures, on multifamily dwelling units, on um uh, I'm trying to think some other ones, but I, but at that point you're talking a 20 year relationship, yeah. right? And what would you say is the obviously you've got the buy in at the top of the department, you've got the support. Well, and that changes as well. Okay. I mean, a lot of this is it goes in waves, right? And heads of departments change, and leadership changes. People retire, people move on, new people move in. How, how does it affect getting that message down to the firefighter that's actually going to be doing the work? Sure. You know? Well, in a department like FDNY, I mean, you're talking 11,000-plus members right. and uh, a heck of a challenge. And it's, uh, it's continually working with their training academy. It's the tireless efforts of the, the people like Cirillo and Healy that, that live it and try and push it and keep right. it alive. Uh, unfortunately, it keeps after getting action, sparked by... After action reports. Uh, it gets sparked by incidents. And in many cases, it's it's bad things that happen sure. that sparks it back up and kicks it and makes it keep going. Um, smaller departments, that can happen a lot easier. I mean, you get mm-hmm. a, a fire chief says this and everything happens. Yeah, so you're 12 guys, they can implement it like Boom. that. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Versus... Fast and flexible. Yeah, you got to train four shifts times X number of stations and hit all those guys. Right. And, and then there's the ones that were on vacation and everything else. And right. so, and if equipment needs to be purchased, I mean, that's another major thing. Capital expense and all that other stuff. Right. So it's a uh, it, varying degrees of challenges. Right. Sound like the beginning of New Art, didn't it? Yeah, right. <laughs> Looking for the Cobb yeah, County Fire Chief. Dating myself? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should get that. Um, Steve, you said you had a, a war story before we. Uh, oh yeah, you, you, wanna, wanna, you want a war story? Let's um, do that. So I would say one of one of my biggest uh, aha. Um, Moments probably goes to when I moved from NIST to UL, and uh, when I was at 
one of my first projects at NIST was, I think it was dictated by the U.S. Fire Administration, is we, we got to start figuring out these PPV fans. These things are being used all over the place, mm-hmm. and we don't, some things go good, some things go bad. How the hell do we figure this stuff out? Right. And working with Dan and, and being coached by him, the one thing that was obvious right away was, well, Dan, we can't we can't understand fans if we can't understand horizontal ventilation with no fans, and that's what drove us away from looking at fans in houses and started taking us to looking at fans used defensively to pressurize stairwells and high rises, because okay. we figured that if if departments are going to put these on the rigs, they've got to have a reason to use it that everybody buys into. Right. And we felt that there was going to be a hell of a lot more acceptance of pressurizing stairwells because it was kind of following a very basic fire protection engineering principle of stairwell pressurization, right. except the fire department brings it with them. And we figured that if, well, if the departments could get the fans on the rigs, they're smart. They're going to find all kinds of great uses for these things once, <laughs> they, once they get them and get them figured out. Um, but the bottom line was we didn't understand horizontal, so we weren't ready to go to positive pressure attack yet. Right. Fast forward, I go to UL, and the AFG grants get going, and I put in one for horizontal ventilation because I felt that we need that backbone in order to keep going. So horizontal led to vertical, led to positive pressure. But during that horizontal, the purpose is obviously to study horizontal ventilation. So we've got different door openings, different window openings, different combinations. And ultimately, after you get what you want from the horizontal openings you got to put the fire out so you can repair the structure and look at another horizontal situation and suppression really was not built into that project as a focus but we had to put the fire out right and i've got a bunch of lab techs that have little to no firefighting experience so i'm not going to send them in to put the fire out i'm just going to have them put water on the fire right plain and simple fire coming out of that window put water on the fire water on it except we've got hundreds of measurement channels inside these houses. And being brought up in the fire service, just like many other people, it was, don't put water in a window. You're going to push a fire through the structure. So that's what I believe is going to happen. Or not as extreme as some people think, but I figure there would be some iteration of water in that bedroom window. We made things worse in the hallway. Right. And uh, so we get to the part of, now I've got... 16 tests and I've got all kinds of data to go through and I'm focusing on the ventilation component of it of all right open here flow pet there okay fire goes here fire spreads there these are kind of the time frames we're looking at and then I'm looking at the tail end of all these tests and it's like where's the bad part all of this (laughs) looks really good huh wait a second maybe what I thought was going to happen didn't quite happen and that kind of aha has probably led to hundreds sure. of tests looking specifically at suppression after ventilation and has led right. to the whole pushing fire conversation right. and all of that that's still going to this day. So it, it wasn't the goal. It was almost it was an, an accident. It was an accident. Right, yeah. right. It's like making Velcro here. You know, he's totally Pretty much. It's exactly right. It was not the intention at all. Before we start talking to you guys, yeah. that we wondered if it was goal-specific, or was it like a whole, we just stumbled upon this? No. I mean, we kind of stumbled upon it at that point. I'm sure Dan stumbled upon it several times during what he was doing. 
And another stumble was pretty much when we got to Governor's Island, we still didn't know a ton about it. And one of the things that became a realization real quick is, I don't care whether you're smoothbore or not. The moment you start whipping that smoothbore around, you're creating a fog nozzle. Yep. And it was like, holy crap. The, many guys, <laughs> you take that smoothbore, you put it in their hands, and the first thing they want to do is, is whip it, it around in a, in a circle. And if you put your hand up and kind of blocked what nozzle they were using, you would swear there was a fog pattern coming out of that <laughs> nozzle. And uh, it was kind of a like, oh, wait a second. This pattern matters. Right. And this pattern's going to matter a lot. And uh, it was by looking at that data that it triggered us to start looking at some other stuff to figure right. out how much air is going with the water and what matters, water or air, or both, and stuff right. like that. And and that's where dead-end flow paths and stuff like that started to really show their heads of like, wait a second, where where that can go and dead ends and everything else, this is all very important. Right. And... Uh, that's where the basement fires really took off uh, as far as tactics go. And, uh, yeah, it's I mean, it was re- it's really true from the standpoint of research in many cases creates more right. questions. But we now have, I mean, it, Dan's got 30 years, but I've got 15 years of chasing these rabbits where they go. And to be able to do that in the 2000s, when we've been firefighting for hundreds of years mm-hmm. is kind of shows you the importance of research as we can kind of run some of these things down right. that you can't just randomly do on the fire ground. I mean, you can't like, I want to study vertical ventilation this month. So right. every fire we go to this month, we're going to go ahead and open the roof. You can't do that. Yeah, I mean, you just can't randomly yeah. try that. Um, so... We can do those things. We can right. begin to look at that stuff and see what we learn. And, and I think the big change, so when we first at NIST started, uh, and we and other people in the past had been doing research for the fire service. So we weren't really interacting with them so much. We just had a project to do, like do this project on compressed air foam, do this project on Class A foam, do this project on turnout gear. But we might deal with the manufacturers of those products, but not really the end user. And uh, that, with uh, getting involved with FDNY and the Chicago Fire Department and our local fire departments, Montgomery County, Prince George's County, and whatnot, that created a change that once we started to do research with the fire service, then everything kind of got legs. Everything took hold. Everything started really, you know, hey, this matters to us. We want to help you. Right. The fire and, service was taking that ownership. Yep. Right. And uh, and then that, that unfortunately led to a demand that we've been trying to meet and uh, still stay married. And uh, But, I mean, you know. As be, we sit at well, 8 o'clock well, you know. on, a, on a, what is it, Wednesday? <laughs> Whatever day yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, every minute of yeah. it. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, so people are, are calling us, texting us, hey, we've got this issue, we've got this problem. But as a researcher, that keeps us incredibly in tune with what the issue is, which is really important if you're trying to find an answer that's useful. Right. And um, and so I think it's it's been a, a harmonious relationship for the most part. You say there's you know some people pushing back and whatnot, but sure. the, but in uh, uh, for the most part, I think people are looking forward to the information. They're glad to have additional information to use. I personally think is, it's great. And the bottom line is, it's not Stephen Bannon. Right. I mean, that we have a tremendous team that, that works with us. We've got an advisory board made up of firefighters around the world that are 
constantly challenging us and pushing us and stuff like that and it's it really is it's 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 the fire services process we're just trying to kind of shepherd it along because it's it's needed every other profession has research sure why not the fire service well change well and that's yeah that's that's our our joke is that the the fire department motto the, the bottom of the patch ought to say we fear change and it doesn't matter what kind of change it is you know it, it, but that pushback for our listeners the, the one thing that I hope uh, if anybody out there has that doubt or when they hear you know here we go again the, you know with, with data and all that stuff isn't it hard for me you know and I I, I, I don't like that term any, either but what what a lot of people uh, I think are doing is taking some of the the things, the considerations that you guys are, are putting out there, and they're taking it that that's the absolute 100%. Got to do that every time, and you know, like there's a playbook. And you talk to young young firefighters that are starting to ride seat, and they'll pull you to the side and they'll be like, "Okay, but what what order am I supposed to do this stuff on when I get on scene?" You know, well, it depends. It totally depends on that scene. You know, we're giving you information. We expect you to go out there and make a decision. Right. But I think a lot, not a lot, but some of the people that are, are receiving the information are jumping to the conclusion that it's got to be this way every time, and I don't agree with that. So therefore, I'm not going to listen. Sure. And all I'm all I'm saying is is listen. Right. At least listen, because the the work that you guys are doing, I think it's great. I think, like you said, research is uh, it's it's time that that we do have it. Sure. You know. Sure. Um, so it's a way to do it, not necessarily the only way to exactly. Do it. Well, and, and can you think around it? I mean, sure. can you have an intelligent conversation where people don't get mad at each other, where you discuss potential options right. as it goes? And I mean, if I had advice for and advice that I wish I had and followed when I was a, a line officer is no one expects you to know everything. Mm-hmm. And for a line officer out there, new or seasoned, I mean, specifically the seasoned guys, and these new guys come up to you and say, hey, what about this? Don't shut them down. I mean, have that conversation and be willing to say as an officer, I don't know the answer to that. Right. And because I don't know the answer to that, let's do this. Why don't you go and research that topic? Why don't you read fire engineering? Why don't you go to MAFC? Why don't you go do all this stuff? Learn as much as you can about that topic and bring it back to our crew and let's talk about this together and let's learn together about this. Right. I feel like for so long those officers felt like they were put in a position where I need to know everything. And if I sure. don't say I know everything, I'm showing a sign of weakness and it's my job to not show signs of weakness as a right. leader. And I think in many cases with today's uh, workforce, if you will, where any new recruit can pull out an iPhone and Google the topic and call BS on anything you say almost in real time, that now is the time to embrace that, to essentially say, well, let's see what so-and-so out of L.A. or New York or DeKalb or whatever. There you go. (laughs) Go to the website, see what we have to say. uh, But then ultimately layer that on your system. Don't take anything as gospel. That's going to get us all in trouble. Right. Right. So it's uh, it's having that dialogue. It's and I feel like 
in the system that we have, if you're able to learn together, that will translate not only into the camaraderie around the firehouse. I think that also goes to the trust that those officer or that those firefighters have in that officer and their ability to lead those people by showing that vulnerability of I, it's impossible for me to know everything. I hundred percent agree with you. I, I talk about this often. You know, I will you know publicize. Although I'm a battalion chief, you know, I'll tell people I don't know. Yeah. Or or I'll applaud them if I'm wrong and they're right. Sure. I appreciate right. you knowing this better than yeah. I do. Yeah. And it's okay that I don't know it. I'm not expected to be perfect. Yeah, it's a team sport. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, we've got one more thing to do, which yeah, is our, some closing questions. Our closing questions, which are <laughs> rapid uh, fire. Kind of the same questions that we uh, we give everybody. All right. Uh, this could be for both of you or either of you. Uh, what is your favorite word or phrase on the fire ground? Favorite word or phrase? Thing that you like to hear the most? Uh, water on the fire. <laughs> All right. uh, what's your least favorite word or phrase on the fire ground? <laughs> um, I don't like when firefighters call each other by their names on the fire ground, where they yeah. don't use radio lingo, where essentially it's. Uh, Hey, Bobby, what do you got? And then no one else on the fire ground knows who the heck Bobby is or what he has. Or where Bobby just happens to be riding that day. Exactly. Radio discipline. Okay. I don't like that after a line of duty death, the chief says we would do it the same exact same way. Oh, you are, oh boy. Now, the podcast just got four hours longer. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody that knows me for uh, a little bit knows that I teach a class on a particular incident where our fire chief said that, and it oh no way it sticks with me to this day. Yeah. Uh, it's haunting. It's just bad. Like how can this? Ha- how can yeah. you say that? How would you say that? But that goes back to that resistance to change. It is. It, it really is. But yeah, that's a good one. Or admitting any fault whatsoever right. in anything. You know, and I had one person argue with me that that was what that that particular fire chief was doing was basically legally protecting the. The department and I, I don't. I'm sorry. Don't buy it. I don't buy it. Yeah. I can't buy it. I can't think that if I was in that position, I would. Take I'd that. take that route. I'd, yeah. I'd have to say, we got to look this at is this. Unex- this is unacceptable. Yeah. Sure. No we, matter what we did. And we and we've got to look at this. So, yeah. yeah. Engine or truck? When I was firefighting, I would say truck. Now engine. <laughs> <laughs> You want any of that there? <laughs> no, it's just been rumored that if they were going to make a uh, vehicle that uh, you can uh, use the joystick and you can beach it and make the blitz attack, that I would be that guy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe uh, Dan would have a bumper turret on maybe whatever. The ARF tank. Yeah. Or the ARF truck's tank coming to your neighborhood. neighborhood. Okay. Uh, what motivates you? Uh, the fire service. I just love the fire service. Really good people to work with. Well, and I think that's that's a, that's kind of a universal thing. I yeah. think you basically yeah. said the same thing. Yeah, in, in my book. Dan, what's your favorite book? Wow, I don't know. It's a tough one. When do you have time to read? I mean, I have a lot of books. I'm just trying to think of, of what my favorite Doesn't book is. Doesn't have to be fire service related. Just whatever it is that's. I guess an interesting one is Point of Origin. What's that? 
That was a book that was <coughs> written by a serial arsonist who was also a fire marshal and who's currently in jail. Yeah, I've actually heard of that. <laughs> All right. Get good insight, right? Yeah. Just, Steve? Well, I just went through a UO leadership program that forced me to read more books in about a year than I've ever read in my life. And one of the ones that resonated very well and has a lot of parallels to the fire services, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. We both read it. Excellent book. It is an excellent yeah. book. And it's, I'm, I, I'm not to interrupt y'all's process, but I do want to say this. <laughs> Anybody out there that, that is listening and is thinking about this book, I hate books that are parables. And this book is a fictional company with the, uh, the, the, the rainbow of characters that are all going to be, you know, the one that's difficult to deal with and the one that likes everybody. And, the, you know, they, yep. and when I picked it up, I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, it was. I think it was two and a half hours. I was done with it. It was that. It is a quick read. It I mean, is. it's it's a business book written like a and story. It, was, it, yeah. it it had some really great great uh, insights into it. So I yeah, I love that book. Uh, what profession would you like to uh, have tried other than dealing with fire services? Yeah, if you're not doing this, what would you be doing? Oh man, that's dream uh, job. Dr- dream job. Um, Being a firefighter, but you already did that. I love well, that. Yeah, but I mean, if I don't get to be an engineer, I want to be involved somehow. I mean, it's hard okay. to sit in this firehouse right here and watch the squad roll out the door. It's like oh, it was man, a gas. I'm an engineer. Simple, <laughs> I was pretty comfortable not having That's to do it. That is true. I, did, I was I actually did really glad. Rewind to yeah, like. Oh, I was glad I wasn't going on a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> sitting in the car waiting. Could have been an ambulance call. <laughs> Yeah. Race car driver, junkyard owner, something like that. Are those two things the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's the junkyard owner that has a local race team. <laughs> Looking at your driveway, one might say you're a junkyard owner. <laughs> Not everybody has a fair lane flying on jack stands in the Come driveway. On, <laughs> All right, uh, fictionally, if, or in Steve's case, when, uh, you were introduced as the uh, keynote speaker at FDSC, what song would you be introduced with? I was introduced with a video with the uh, Rosie Soul Heroes song. So those of you that don't know Rosie Soul, it's uh, and the rock and roll and the rock and roll cowboys is uh, Eddie Buchanan out of Virginia. Uh, He's a drummer and his uh, he's got a band with his sister and uh, really cool rock band. Local guys out of Hanover, Virginia, with the uh, a badass female lead singer and. was nice because you could make a phone call and get permission to use the song oh, versus wow. any other song that you would probably yeah, have to pay to, big bucks to, yeah, to call Dave Kroll and, and saying, "Hey, Dave, exactly, Bill, exactly." Can, can I get the latest? <laughs> you know me. I listen to your CDs. Yeah, but no, check check them out. Google Rosie Soul and the and the song Heroes. It's a it's got a fire service theme to it. Okay, obviously, okay. with uh, with Eddie right. Clay. Yeah. Metallica, give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Come on. Dan would, I'm actually a little stunned right now. I think mean, it's hilarious. Dan would break the stage coming out. Today. That would be awesome. That's not what you crack the windshield to, though, right? No, that was anthrax. That was anthrax. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, uh, when you guys decide to retire, how do you want to be remembered? Um, I would like to be remembered as. Uh, some, somebody that tried to help the fire service and a good dad. 
I just want to see the numbers go down. Which numbers? Uh, line of duty death numbers, uh, civilian fatality numbers, fire numbers. Okay. They're, they've kind of stagnated a little bit. I'd like to see them move down a little more. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. Uh, we really want to thank uh, Steve Kerber and Dan Matrikowski. Uh, you guys are in town. You talked today. It's been a long day. Uh, you really didn't know what you were getting into when you sat down with us, but uh, we appreciate it nonetheless. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot from it. And um, we really appreciate what you're doing on a, on a larger scale and what you're trying to do for the fire service, even if some, you know, even if there's some... some uh, we appreciate what y'all do every day. Bumps, so, so. Um, Yeah, and, and I mean, Mathsy is uh, having had an opportunity to teach there. It's pretty amazing, amazing thing. And uh, if no one's had an opportunity to go, that's one that you want to get to. And, well, we, we uh, we'll try be teaching and, there. Yeah, we try and make it as appealing as possible by bringing uh, some big-name instructors in like you guys. <laughs> oh, and I, and I, it, the part that shocked me and still resonates with me is how affordable it is and the fact that the mission is to get as many people there, expose as many people, and keep it as cheap as possible. Right. Uh, to bring in the folks that you bring in, many of which are volunteering to come and teach and stuff like that from right. all over. And, uh, I mean, what, what's the hands-on training cost? Uh, it's 35 bucks. Where do you get that? That's uh, incredible. That's, I mean, how, how you can live here and not take advantage of that, or even buy a plane ticket... Yeah. To get here, it's still cheaper than yeah. anything that you can get out there at a really high quality. So well, and that is what we try and that, like you said, that's kind of our mission. Yeah. You guys are doing yeah. it for the right reason. It's, it's admirable. It's all nonprofit, all volunteer. It's yeah. you know every bit of money that the conference does end up taking in, either through sponsors or donations, goes right back into trying to train. You know, try and capitalize on that and, and really it's pass really that cool. on to the students. So we appreciate y'all being part of that. Our pleasure, and we got to thank Cobb County Fire Station Number Four, right? Absolutely, for uh, hosting us and not answering the phone. Sitting in the battalion chief's (laughs) office, Uh, and they also uh, they also hosted a nice dinner right in right in the middle. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, we appreciate everything they've done. So, uh, that's it for combustible this week or this week. We're doing it weekly now. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was twice a day. Uh, Yeah. That, that ends this episode. <laughs> and uh, as always, uh, if you, you, you know, you can get to us on iTunes if you uh, search Mapsy or Combustible uh, or whatever um, app you use to listen to the uh, podcast. We also have an email address uh, where we take suggestions on topics or comments, which is combustiblethemapsypodcast at gmail.com. And it's on the website. It's on our Facebook page. Follow us. Uh, We really just want to hear from everybody. So until next time, appreciate it.